2007, November 7th. Today is Lecture 33, Mercury. So we're going to start now. We've, we've gone through two overview lectures, one of the general properties of the solar system and the other on the question of the origin of the solar system, so-called cosmogony. Now we're going to then start now a, a detailed tour of the solar system over this week and a little bit into next week of the terrestrial planets and then the Jovian planets. And that will kind of lead us up to the next quiz. So the, right now we're in planets. And we're going to start by, to, by pretty much follow what I would call the traditional ordering of things from the inside on out. And today we're going to talk about the planet Mercury. Key ideas for today, some of this is just bald fact. Mercury is the innermost of the planets of the solar system. It has an interesting property. Its rotation is actually tidally locked into a 3-2 spin orbit resonance with the sun. We'll say a little bit more in a second about what that's about. That's actually an important clue. It has to do a lot with the fact that it's so close to the sun that the sun's tides on Mercury are important. The surface of Mercury, it's a solid surface terrestrial body. It's very heavily cratered and has virtually no atmosphere. In many ways, Mercury superficially resembles the moon, but in detail, there are important differences that we're going to see as we go on. And part of those in, in important differences are due to the differences in the interior. Mercury was a real surprise. When we finally got a good mass for Mercury after the Mariner 10 flyby, it was discovered that Mercury has a very large iron core and a weak magnetic field. The weak magnetic field was not expected. Now, the reason why this happened, we're going to explore in a little bit, actually may be due to a gigantic impact during, during formation. And finally, the other thing we see on Mercury is we see weak tectonic activity. It's actually vertical thrust faulting due to the fact that the surface is actually wrinkling and crinkling a bit as the planet cools and shrinks. So this is an example of the kinds of tectonic activity we see in the solar system, which is different than the plate tectonics we see on the Earth. So today's subject is going to be the planet Mercury, the first of the terrestrial and innermost of the terrestrial planets. Now I'm going to begin each of these lectures on the planets with a slide that looks like this, where I'm going to throw a lot of data out there. Not data I expect you to memorize, but it's sort of a stage setting to give you some numbers to let you know where we are in the solar system. First of all, sort of Mercury at a glance, we'll start with the orbital data. Where are we in the solar system? The second piece of this will then show some of the vital statistics for the planet itself. So in the case of Mercury, we are the innermost of the planets. Its semi-major axis is about 0.386 astronomical units. So you can see it drawn over here on the right. It's the yellow circle with the orbit of Venus, Earth, and Mars drawn around the Sun. It's a fairly elliptical orbit. In fact, it has an eccentricity of 0.206. This is the largest eccentricity, the most elliptical orbit of all the eight major planets. The period of this orbit, following Kepler's laws, is about 88 days. So it takes 88 days for it to go one cycle around the sun with respect to the stars. The, because it's an elliptical orbit, it actually gets fairly close to the sun, as close as 0.31 astronomical units at perihelion, and its most distant point from the sun is out at about 0.47 astronomical units. So there's a large variation in the distance it has from the sun, and therefore a large variation in the amount of the sun's gravity it sees. In fact, Mercury turns out to be a very interesting laboratory for probing the strong gravity of the sun close in. The orbit, while it looks like it's in the plane here, in fact is one of the most tilted orbits of the major planets in the solar system. It's tilted by seven degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system. So it's a little bit out of the, a little bit out of the general plane. 
planet itself here is a computer reconstruction of its surface. This long stripe you see here is not that someone has actually gone and smoothed off Mercury's surface. There's actually no data. There's no imaging data at all for that strip. And why that is, we'll see in just a moment. The basic planetary data is it's a fairly small world. Its radius is a little, under 20, a little over 2,400 kilometers, which makes it about 38% the radius of the Earth. If you add up the mass of Mercury, which has been measured, the only way we can measure masses of things is by sending a spacecraft by them in orbit, or if they have a moon. Mercury has no moons, so the only, until the Mariner 10 spacecraft flew by Mercury, we only had sort of a rough guess as to its mass, but there was no other way to measure it. When Mercury 10 flew past, its deflection of, of its orbit told us how much the mass was. We simply applied Newton's version of Kepler's third law. When we did that, we found a mass of about 0.055 the mass of the Earth. That's about 5.5% the mass of the Earth. And that was surprising because it's a lot bigger than we would have expected if Mercury was mostly silicates for its radius. Its radius was e relatively easy to measure. The other thing that was learned about Mercury, not from spacecraft, but by bouncing radar beams off it, is that Mercury is a fairly slow rotating planet. It takes 58.65 days to complete one rotation around its axis. But the other thing that's quite surprising is this rotation is exactly two-thirds of its orbital period. Now, whenever I mention a rotation period in this class, I mean rotation period measured with respect to the stars. But remember, we would measure the day on a planet with respect to the sun, not the stars. And so if you look at the rotation rate relative to the sun, the so-called solar rotation period, it's actually 176 days long because you're now coupling that 58.65 day rotation with the 88 day orbit. And so you actually get a very long day. Now it turns out, if you go back to old textbooks, I remember an astronomy textbook I learned astronomy out of when I was in high school. So this is back in the sort of late 70s. And there the general lore was that Mercury was tidally locked, so it always kept one face towards the sun. But it was better radar measurements that showed it wasn't. And this is actually something of a surprise. But it has an explanation. So this odd rotation is interesting. The rotation period, again, to reiterate, is 58.65 days. This turns out to be exactly two-thirds of its 87.97-day period. Not a little bit below, not a little bit above, exactly two-thirds. Whenever we see an exact whole number coincidence between the rotation and orbit of something, we know we're dealing with something we've seen already, a spin-orbit resonance. In this case, it's a 3 to 2 spin orbit resonance. What 3 to 2 means is that the planet spin to orbit, it completes three rotations for every two orbits. So every time Mercury goes twice around the sun in its orbit, it turns around on its own axis three times. Now we've seen a spin orbit resonance before the Earth and the Moon system. The Moon is in a 1 to 1 spin orbit resonance with the Earth such that the moon completes one rotation in the time it takes the moon to go once around the Earth. But here we have a 3 to 2 spin orbit resonance. What people had expected, perhaps somewhat naively going in, was that it would be a 1 to 1 resonance, that Mercury was so close to the sun that the tidal field, the tidal, the tidal bulge raised in Mercury by the sun should have synchronized it into a 1 to 1 spin orbit resonance. But on, on careful reflection, that really shouldn't have been the case. The reason why it's a 3 to 2 and not a 1 to 1 is because of its very elliptical orbit. Remember, Mercury goes between about 0.3 and about 0.47 AUs from the Sun. 
So that's a large change in distance and a large change in the tidal field it's going to feel from the sun. The tides, of course, are going to be strongest when you're closest to the sun and weakest when you're further away. So you get a really strong tide at perihelion when it's really close to the sun, when it's uh, getting down there about 0.31 astronomical units. Now it turns out if you look at this 58.65 day rotation period and you ask the following question, what if I put Mercury not in an elliptical orbit, but in a circular orbit that was at its perihelion distance of 0.31? What would its orbital period be at 0.31 astronomical units? Well, the answer turns out to be 58.65 days. So if Mercury was in a circular orbit, 0.31 astronomical units from the sun, it would be tidally locked to the sun in the same way that the moon is tidally locked to the Earth. But because of this elliptical orbit, you get a slightly different coupling between the tides. Instead of getting a strong body tide all the time, you get a strong body tide when you're close to the sun, you get a weaker body tide when you're far from the sun. And that actually introduces a difference in the rate at which Mercury tries to turn through its own tidal bulge, and it actually goes into this 3 to 2 number ratio rather than a 1 to 1 number ratio. So this, this 58.65 turns out to be due to the fact that it's at the the rotation rate it would have if it were tidally locked one-to-one -one with the sun at a circular orbit in its perihelion distance. That's kind of cool. You know, tides are really cool. Tides do cool things to the dynamics of objects. And this one perhaps should have been expected, but it was one of those little, little facts when it was learned. People started thinking, oh yeah, maybe we've got to look more carefully at how tides and other dynamical effects come into play. It's interesting if you look at planetary mechanics textbooks, sort of 1960s and before and kind of modern ones now, is there's a lot more evidence on some of these interesting resonance effects. They would come into play. They were still there. But they were kind of treated as kind of mathematical and physical curiosities. What we've been learning in the last few years is that they are curiosities to be sure, but they actually are quite important in the solar system. Well, this one and a half did three, three to two resonance has some interesting um, properties. Here's a, a sketch trying to show what it's going to look like. This is Mercury completing one orbit. If you, go one, if you do complete three rotations in two orbits, then you complete one and a half rotations in one full orbit. So we start out here, and let's say we're located here at the red spot, and our friend is located here at the blue spot. And this particular illustration that I've stolen out of an old textbook uses the tidal bulge that you would pull. This is the tidal bulge you would have here starting at perihelion. So, in fact, I, this picture is contrived. So our starting point is perihelion, when the tidal bulge should be pretty close to lined up with the sun. As Mercury goes out and rotates around, it moves outwards away from the sun. It now can move through its own tidal bulge in some way. And so what we get is this slow rotation around so that one and a half times around now I'm red point, instead of being starting at noon, now the red point's at midnight. So one orbit later, I go from noon to midnight, and then I repeat that through a second orbit, and I go from midnight back to noon. And so the day on Mercury is exactly twice its year. So one, day on, one Mercurian day is equal to two Mercurian years due to this 3 to 2 resonance. It means that Mercury is doing this sort of very, very slow barbecue roll with the sun. 
So it doesn't always keep one side towards the sun getting baked and the back side isn't freezing, which is what we all learned when I was a kid in astronomy, but it actually does this sort of slow roll where it rolls around once for two orbits. So that's 88 days twice. It's about 176 days of, total, of day and night. Now, a lot of what we know about Mercury before the age of spacecraft, before the mid-1970s, came from telescopic observations. And the answer was, not a whole lot. And the reason for that is that Mercury is very close to the sun. It only gets within, a, what, what, 27 degrees? Oh, now I'm forgetting the number. 28 degrees away from the sun is the, is the furthest it ever gets away from the sun. And the sky is really bright, and Mercury is pretty tiny. It's really hard to observe Mercury from the ground. In fact, it's very hard to see any terrain features at all, largely because Mercury is, for the most part, fairly devoid of very strong light-dark features. It's very different from the moon, for example, where you have super dark maria and super and relatively speaking, light highlands. So it really wasn't until we got a spacecraft to go by Mercury that we actually got a good picture. Getting a spacecraft down to Mercury is not easy. You've got to bleed off a lot of velocity to drop down into that low orbit. And the way you do it is you use fly, successive flybys on other, on, by other planets. In particular, what you do is you use a, a quick gravity assist off the Earth just after you launch it. You can like, kind of trail behind the Earth, bleed off a little delta V from the Earth, expend as much fuel as you can possibly carry, which really isn't much, drop yourself down into an orbit around Venus, get in behind Venus, use Venus's gravity to bleed off more delta V to get you down to Mercury. But in the 1970s, that was a relatively uh, brash, young, new technique. And so the best they could manage for the Mariner 10 spacecraft was to manage two successive flybys. They couldn't actually bleed off enough delta V and carry enough fuel to actually hope to break into orbit around Mercury, which is what you'd really like to do. So instead, they had, were able to do three passes between 1974 and 1975 before the spacecraft finally went off on its own and no longer passed by Mercury. Now, as it, as it imaged, as it passed by on these three occasions, that funky three to two resonance thing kind of bit us because it meant that you know, we were, the spacecraft was on a ballistic trajectory. It was on an orbit following Newton's laws, too. And so it always came by when the same side of Mercury was sunlit. And so as a consequence, half of Mercury, the same half of Mercury, was in darkness during all three passes. So we only know what half the planet looks like. So we just have no idea. That's why I draw this is not for artistic sake here. We really don't know what that other half of the planet looks like. Well, not yet anyway. We are going to learn very soon. Um, in 2004, the Messenger spacecraft was launched by NASA. It was built by John Hopkins University. This shows part of its sun shield and its uh, solar panels. You're close enough to the sun here, you've got to heavily shield the spacecraft to keep it from getting roasted. It's done a series of flybys, an Earth flyby and two Venus flybys to bleed off enough delta V to get down to Mercury's orbit. It's going to make its first pass by Mercury in January of, of this coming year, so about January 21st or 22nd or so. Messenger will make the first of three pass, two passes by Mercury, first in 2008, one, I forget when, I think it's August of 2009. Now we're going to get lucky. We're actually going to see at least one of the quarters that we didn't see before. So we'll actually get from knowing half of Mercury, after the 08 flyby, if everything goes well, we'll now have a map of three quarters of Mercury. 
By the 2009 flyby, most of the other missing quarter will be in play. But then the really cool thing happens. The spacecraft is carrying enough fuel and much more advanced rockets. It's, it's 2004, not 1974. 30 years of technology does help. In 2011, it's going to make a close gravity approach, and it's going to just blow the last of its fuel, or at least most of the last of its fuel, and drop into orbit. And that will allow them for at least as long as the spacecraft can survive in the environment to actually map out the planet in detail, measure the magnetic field, and actually come really, really close. Some of the maneuvering fuel can actually bring it fairly close to the surface. In fact, this 2008 flyby, I think it comes 200 kilometers over the surface of Mercury. So keep an eye out for that stuff on the news. This could be really cool. This will be our first look at Mercury in 30, more than 30 years. Well, that's the future. What do we know about Mercury now? What do we know? A lot of what I'm going to talk about now comes from those three Mariner 10 flybys in 74 and 75. The first thing that we, that we see on the pictures of Mercury is it's extremely heavily cratered. In fact, Mercury, if, if you don't know quite what you're looking at, you're not used to looking at pictures of astronomical bodies, it often can be mistaken for the moon. But if you look closely, there are some important differences that clue you in that you're not looking at the moon. Okay. Judging from the cratering rate and using the moon as an analogy, which is not too bad, it looks like that most of the surface is between about 3.8 and 4 billion years old, judging from the high density of multiple overlapping craters. In fact, most of the surface of Mercury looks superficially like the lunar highlands, and we have a very good rock age date for the lunar highlands from the sample returns from, from Apollo and, 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 the, uh, and the lunacods. However, there's a little clue here is what's going on. This 3.8 to, to 4 billion years old corresponds to that epoch of heavy bombardment that I mentioned yesterday where the last major hunks of rock and stuff were just getting cleared out of the solar system during formation. So here again we're seeing one of these really ancient surfaces that was really carved up and, and formed, shaped by meteoritic impacts during the epoch of heavy bombardment. One of the clues you have, I just showed you a crater field on the moon and a crater field on Mercury, you would notice a difference, it's kind of subtle, the craters on Mercury are flatter. The, the highs are not as high, the lows are not as low. And the reason is that Mercury is a bigger world than the moon, its gravity is sur at the surface is two times stronger, and so you just can't pile up crater walls and you can't dig out, you can't excavate craters that deep. And so the whole system goes up, then flattens back out, it kind of slumps much better. And so you can actually get this feeling when you're looking at Mercury terrains like, it's kind of like someone took the big high-relief moon terrains and kind of, kind of squashed them a little bit. That, that impression is actually the right one. That's actually what's happening. The squashing, of course, is, is the gravi stronger gravity of the, of the moon. The basic terrain features that we see on Mercury bear a lot of resemblances to what we see on the moon. We see highlands and lava basins, although at least on the half of the, of the planet we've imaged, we do not see the kinds of really extensive maria so far like we see on the, Earth, on, the, on the Earth's moon. There is one very, very large lava basin, which is clearly an impact basin, one of these multi-ring features. It's called the Caloris Basin, Caloris from the, the word for hot. And we see another series of rather interesting terrains, things called lobate scarps, basically vertical faults. And we see very jumbled, very chaotic terrains. And, and all these are kind of related in various and sundry ways. So here's a picture of Mercury. This is the same one I showed earlier, but now it's the big version. This shows you a couple of missing bits here. Um, these are where there's simply no data. That would, those places were in shadow, both passes. 
So we've reconstructed a little over one half the surface, but not much more. And again, you see it's very, very heavily cratered. It looks a lot like the lunar highlands. There are a couple of, of lava plains, but they are not as broad or deep or lightly cratered like we see on the moon. So this is a pretty good reconstruction. Why they gave it a gold color, I have no idea. It's probably the same color as the moon, kind of a dark gray color if it really is seen. And that's what we're going to see in a lot of the subsequent pictures. Here's a, a somewhat better picture. This is showing uh, Mercury here. This is from the uh, Mariner 10. And again, you see sort of a big splash crater here. Lots of overlapping craters on this particular view. But you do still see now that effect I was telling you about, about how the craters look flattened. They look like someone's come in and kind of sanded them down a bit. And this is a very characteristic Mercurian terrain. A lot of the white spots you see in here are artifacts of the kind of okay but not great cameras that were carried 30 years ago. The new generation messenger is going to be carrying state-of-the-art digital cameras, so it's going to give us stunning views. We should be able to see clearly see boulder fields on the close passes. It's really going to be exciting. The biggest lava plains that are seen on the surface, the most interesting one, turns out we only, <laughs> this seems to be a thing with Mariner 10. We see half of it. In this case, we see half of a ringed basin. You can see here where there's been a, a massive asteroidal size impact has just punched through Mercury's crust. Clearly did so a long time ago because this basin has got a lot of craters, but the crater density here is not as big as it is out here, so you know this impact occurred fairly late in that heavy bombardment, ep bombardment epoch. The crater was so massive that it left a ring basin 1,340 kilometers across. Now remember that the diameter of Mercury is barely 4,800 kilometers across. So this is a gigantic smack on the side of the planet. Now where this occurred, of course, you sent ripples like rings in a pond outward through the solid surface of the planet. But those seismic waves rang this planet like a bell. So we had seismic pressure waves get punched into the planet just like P waves on Earth. So compression waves go through the planet. And then we get the surface S waves, some of which you can see frozen here into the surface as these ripples in the solid rock of the crust. Those waves, of course, rang through the planet. But unlike throwing a, a you know, if you throw a rock into a pond, you get the initial splash and you get rings of waves coming outwards from the point of splash. But ponds are flat. Planets are round. So as a consequence, when the massive impact that formed the Calochloris Basin happened, it just excavated a huge amount of material, melted it completely, punched into the lower molten layers, which then welled up and flooded in and repaved most of it. That's why it has fewer craters in the surroundings. The pressure waves go crashing through the planet. The surface waves go around. And because they wrap around on the exact opposite side of the planet, these waves are spreading out, and then they start converging. And so all that energy gets focused on the antipodal point, the spot exactly on the opposite side of the planet. When that, those waves hit, it actually busted up the crust down to a tremendous depth. It, it just turned and churned the entire place. Now, it turns out that we got half of the Caloris Basin. We also imaged the other half for the antipodal part during one of the Mariner Passes. And what we see is this surface. Normally, you don't see surfaces as jumbled and chaotic like this. This is surfaces which were literally broken up and then just slammed back down on the planet. Lower cratering density down in here. You see a couple of places where there's a few post 
uh, impacts that occurred that erased some of the jumbled terrain. But this incredibly complex terrain here is showing again that the, the effect of impacts for shaping a pl solid planetary surface. We normally think of the shaping as occurring right at the point of impact. But if the impact is big enough, it can actually disrupt and crumble the crust on the other side due to this seismic focusing effect. So here's an example where, again, impacts play an important role in the shaping of a solid surface. Mercury is very close to the sun. It's really hot on Mercury. As a consequence, it has virtually no atmosphere. In fact, there is an atmosphere. It's very, very thin. The pressure is 10 to the minus 12, that on Earth. That's, that's basically a trillionth of the pressure on the Earth. What it consists of is mostly hydrogen and helium, but not hydrogen and helium retained from the original solar nebula, but hydrogen and helium temporarily captured by the gravity of Mercury from the solar wind. The outside of the sun is not solid, it's a gas, and so some of the gas on the surface of the sun boils off as a very, very thin solar wind. It's a tiny fraction of the mass of the sun. It's like one one-hundred trillionth of the... Yeah, one one-hundred trillionth of the mass of the sun comes off every year. So it's really tiny. It would take forever to make the sun evaporate that way. This carries off because the sun is mostly hydrogen and helium. It carries off mostly those atoms. A few of those are actually, when they collide with mercury, are slow enough moving that they can be temporarily captured. But if you give them time, they'll eventually evaporate away. The other thing the atmosphere shows is atoms of sodium and calcium. These are actually atoms, they're single atoms that are knocked out of the so surface of the rock and the soil on the surface of the planet by incoming high energy particle events. Again, it's not much, but you know, when you're hot and you're close to the sun, you do what you can to build an atmosphere. Now, it's, if we look at Mercury, we look at the formation of Mercury and what we think we know about the formation of the Earth and Venus and Mars, it's actually expected that Mercury should have formed with a fairly substantial atmosphere. A somewhat smaller because it's a smaller planet, but substantial by comparison. However, Mercury has two things going against it for hanging on to that atmosphere. Number one is its low mass and therefore has a low surface gravity. Okay, so low gravity lowers the amount, basically lowers the escape speed on the surface, which means cooler things can escape than they could on a larger planet. The second thing that's going against it is it's right next to the sun. It's only 0.3 to 0.47 AUs away. The surface temperatures are very high, so you have the natural speeds of gases in, in a primordial atmosphere on Mercury would be very, very fast, and you're a small world, so your escape speed is really, really low. And that combination is a double whammy, and the atmosphere basically probably boiled away somewhere in the first billion years of the existence of the planet. So we don't expect much of an atmosphere, and that, in fact, is what we find, even though it could have started out with an atmosphere very similar in composition to Venus and Earth and Mars in their primordial atmospheres. So here's kind of a picture cartoon of what standing on the surface of Mercury would look like. It's a very jumbled up, plowed up terrain, heavily cratered, kind of looks like the lunar highlands, but everything's flatter. The mountains aren't as high, the craters aren't as deep, and there's no atmosphere, so the sky would be a deep velvet black. And because Mercury is between 0.47 and 0.3 times, uh, 0.3 AUs from the, uh, from the sun, the sun would appear much larger in the sky. It basically appears about two-thirds larger in the sky than it, uh, I'm sorry, half again. I'll do that, Rick. Do it. It's about three times, yeah, 
about two and a half to three times larger in the sky than it would, see for, would be seen from the Earth. Yeah, I can't do inverse fractions in my head either. Now, because it has no atmosphere, and it's nestled up next to the sun, and it rotates really slowly, it takes 176 days to turn around once with respect to the sun, Mercury has some of the most extreme day-night temperature variations of any planet in the solar system. The daytime at noon, right under the sun, is roasting. It's 500 degrees Kelvin, or about 441 degrees Fahrenheit. The nighttime side is staring out into the cold, empty depths of space, and so the surface just radiates away, just like here on Earth. If you want to know in the wintertime whether it's going to be cold or really cold, you can tell right away by asking, is it cloudy or is it clear? Those crystal clear nights in the middle of winter are the ones that are really bitter cold because you get radiative cooling. So the backside of Mercury gets even more radiative cooling because there's no atmosphere to even things out. And so the temperature plunges to 100 Kelvin or 279 degrees Fahrenheit below zero on the nighttime side. Well, you can kind of do the math here. The difference between these two sides is in excess of 700 degrees Fahrenheit from noon to midnight. So it's not going to be a very nice place to be. Some of the daytime locations, because the soil's churned up, can actually trap heat inside. And it's expected that some of those regions, in fact, have been measured using infrared radiometry, have temperatures up around 600 degrees Kelvin. That's twice the temperature in absolute Kelvin scale of room temperature. Now, the poles are going to be a different story, because the fact the way Mercury's slow rotation and its tilt is the poles are actually in perpetual twilight. As a consequence, because the, Earth, the axis is virtually untilted, the sun is right pretty much on Mercury's equivalent of the celestial equator. So as a consequence, you get this partial shadow. It gets some heat, you know, light shining over the edges of craters and such. Some of the polar soil has been measured to be very cold, about 125 Kelvin, or about 234 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. This is actually the one place on Mercury where you could have a survival of ices or of other frozen material, say, for example, from an impact of a comet or other icy material that hit the world during the epoch of heavy bombardment. There have been observations in the past using radar beams bounced off Mercury that have suggested that maybe there are, in fact, ices in the polar craters. But that's still a fairly controversial result. That, uh, it, it stood so well for a long time and ended up in the textbooks. And then a couple years ago, someone redid the observations with a much more advanced radar system, like using the giant Arecibo radar dish out in Puerto Rico, and said, no, maybe not. Maybe we're seeing something else. So still up in the air, based on radar measurements, what's going on at the poles, one of the mission goals of the MESSENGER spacecraft is going to be, once it goes into orbit and starts doing a detailed measurement of the surface, we'll be looking at trying to resolve this question of whether there can be a survival of ices at the so-called thermal poles of, of, of Mercury. So that's on the surface. What can we learn about the interior? Well, you get a couple of clues. One is you get a clue from the density. The other is you get a clue from, the, uh, from surface features that give you an idea of what's going on below. Mercury is roughly intermediate in size between the Moon and Mars. <coughs> so if you want to place things in order among terrestrial-like planets, it's Moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, and Earth in order of increasing size. What you expect is the lithosphere, the outer layer of rock, is actually much thinner than the Moon's, but it's a lot thicker than we find on the Earth and Mars. That's the first indication from the measurements of the, of, of the spacecraft. One feature you do get, and you can see it 
laid out here in this, in this beautiful Mariner photograph. You can see how this crater looks like this old crater here has suddenly been broken, as if one part's been picked up and the other part's been pushed down. And so you can see this sort of lobates crack in the surface of the planet. And you can see where it's cutting across the, the crater here shows you that this crack occurred after the cratering occurred. This type of feature where you see a very high cliff called a scarp and it has this sort of you know, rounded appearance in relief is called a lobate scarp. It's a sign of a tectonic. It's a, it's, a it's a vertical faulting or formation of a cliff. It's a sign of basically a tectonic disturbance but not plate tectonics. We're not seeing mercury broken up into plates that are floating on a semi-liquid uh, mantle. We're actually seeing the planet is shrinking as it cools off and contracts, but the surface is fairly brittle. And eventually the underlying mantle shrinks out from underneath it and the whole thing kind of wrinkles and buckles. And that wrinkling and buckling as the interior cools cause this, causes this vertical scarping. So this is a form of tectonism, but it's a kind of vertical tectonism and it's caused not by any kind of plate tectonics, but simply by the planet is literally wrinkling as it cools and shrinks. Now, the deep interior we don't know a lot about. It'd be really nice to put seismic stations on the planet, but we can get some idea of what's going on again from the density and from other measurements. We expect that the rocky mantle is about 700 kilometers thick, and what's surprising is that the mass of Mercury for its size is really big. It's got a mean density of about five and a half grams per cc. That's almost like iron, rather than like the Earth, which is like three and a half grams per cc. So what this is telling us is that the planet has an unexpectedly high iron content core. In fact, it's about 75% the radius of Mercury and contains 60% of its mass. Compare that to the iron core on the Earth, which is only like 25% of the radius of the Earth and contains only about 30% of the mass. So it's an immense iron core. Now the way we know this iron core is, is here is by two things. One is that there is unexpected, the Mariner 10 spacecraft detected a weak, about 1% as strong as the Earth magnetic field when it flew by the planet Mercury. Everyone expected that Mercury was going to be like the Moon, have virtually no magnetic field at all. And in fact, the only kind of magnetism we see on the moon is the fossil magnetism sealed up in old rocks. But Mercury, by comparison to the moon, has a whopping magnetic field. Now, it's only 1% of the Earth's, but it wasn't supposed to have any. So what was it doing there? That was a real mystery. The other thing was, with the spacecraft flyby, we measured the mass, and the density came out to about 5.43 grams per cc. Now, if you compare this with Mars, which is kind of the next up planet in size, has a density of about 3.9 grams per cc. Five and a half to six grams per cc is like pure iron. So this is a very, very heavy world. The only way you can get that kind of density is to basically do it with a very large iron content. And again, this weak magnetic field and a really big high density all point to a very large iron core. So if we, if we cut away the Earth and Mercury and show them to scale, Here's the Earth showing its molten outer core and the solid inner core with a fairly thick mantle and thin crust. Remember that two-thirds of the mass of the Earth is in the mantle. Whereas in Mercury, it's a gigantic iron core with a very thin mantle and a relatively thin crust. Now, the crust is actually thicker than it is on the Earth. The Earth's crust at its thickest is only about 300 kilometers, whereas the crust of Mercury, I think I just said, was about... Um, 
300 kilometers thick or so. It's much thicker than it is on, on the Earth. So how did it get such a big core? I mean, we would expect that the planets all formed in the same way out of roughly the same materials in this zone. So what's it doing with its superabundance of iron? That doesn't make sense vis-a-vis -vis that, that accretion picture we talked about yesterday for formation of, of terrestrial planets. Well, the leading idea, and this sounds like a stretch, but actually it, it explains an awful lot, is that Mercury is the product of a head-on collision between two relatively large objects. The collision was almost exactly head-on. The collider was smaller than the original proto-Mercury. And when they hit, they hit and pancaked. The impact was so strong it blew off most of the mantle that would have been around the differentiated iron core with silicate mantle. The silicate rocks got blown away, but the iron cores were left behind. The two iron cores from Collider and the original Proto-Mercury formed together into a super iron core, and then what rocky silicate mantle material did not get blown off fell back on and reformed the mantle and crust. And that's how you get a really, really big iron core and a really thin rocky outer crust. Now the weak magnetic field is also giving us some clues as to what, going, what went on as well. The fact that we've got a weak magnetic field means we've got a weak dynamo. Remember, the dynamo on the, on the Earth was due to a molten iron portion of the core in which circulation patterns in the, in the metal fluid set up electric fields, and those circulating electric fields set up the Earth's strong magnetic field. So you have to have circulating molten metals or molten metallic-like substances to make magnetic fields. Well, it's really hard to know whether there's molten in the interior of Mercury. We can tell that on the Earth because we can bounce seismic waves through. We don't have any seismographs. Well, it turns out that part of the clue came just this summer. There were observations using radar of Mercury's locked 3 to 2 resonance. It's actually not exactly perfect. It turns out if Mercury was solid, it would actually be expected to wobble a little bit because it gets the tidal forcing on its bulge, and so it actually would wobble a little bit as it's going through its rotation. That wobbling is called uh, libration. What they found was that Mercury's wobble was a lot bigger than you would expect for a completely solid planet. And that bigger wobble was suggesting there was a liquid component inside. If you actually try to rotate a can full of solid stuff, like a heavy, dense consomme versus soup, the soup can is going to wobble and be funny in its rotation a lot more than the, solid, the can containing a solid material. So true of two of a planet. If a planet's interior is slightly liquid, there are places for its rotational energy to literally get kind of sloshed back and forth between internal fluid motions and its rotation. They kind of go back and forth that way. So the suggestion is that the core is still molten, even though this, this collision that formed Mercury was four billion years ago or so. And the reason why it's probably still molten is because it might be, and this is the speculation, is that the iron core may in fact be very rich in sulfur. If you mix sulfur with iron, you lower its melting point. And so you actually can keep it liquid longer than you could if it was absolutely pure iron. It's all kind of speculative, but it all hangs together in its own way. So here's what the collision picture looks like. Here's the proto-mercury and the collider. They smack together and very quickly pancake. The pancake then falls back on its own gravity to form the gigantic iron core. 
a lot of sulfur gets mixed in as a consequence of, and magnesium and other stuff gets mixed in in this collision, it lowers the melting point, and you get a gigantic molten iron core. The silicates that weren't blown off into space and escape fall back on top of that mantle. You get a heavy molten iron core surrounded by the light silicate mantle, and you get the planet Mercury as a consequence. That's a pretty good idea. It's going to be really hard to test but it seems to be the best contending uh, idea now. And a lot of Messenger's mission is to try to figure out ways to test it. So again, uh, we'll, we'll end on this note. This is another example of where planetary impacts play an important role in the evolution of solar system bodies. In this case, an, an impact between a planet and an asteroidal-sized body has had a profound change in the, in the properties of that body. In the case of Mercury, we actually have a head-on impact being invoked to explain why it has such an anomalously large, crazy composition iron core. Impacts are an essential feature of the evolution of the solar system. And we're going to be seeing here, we see it for the first time, we're going to see it throughout the solar system as we go and continue on our tour. Pick that up tomorrow.